Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Things you don't want to hear after getting naked. Why don't you take off that sweater? fries with that <laughs> what are you seeing <laughs> you may get out of mcdonald's here. <laughs> Good morning. It's Tuesday, Trump Tuesday, February the 27th, and this is The True Conservative. Welcome to all the butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers out there. I'm Ron, your host, and the only true conservative in the United States today. So today, after the serenity prayer and the patriotic song of the day, we will have the patriotic shorts, motivation, Bishop Barron, Ayn Rand, the 33 strategies of war, and an excerpt from former President Donald Trump. All that and more when I get back. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I should not change, the courage to change the things I should, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen.
Thank you, thank you. And now, the news. Michigan practicing democracy today as we choose who will be the Republican and Democratic nominees for president. President Biden is likely to keep the nomination for the Democrats as an incumbent. Meanwhile, former President Trump and Nikki Haley face off on the Republican ticket. Will Haley pull an upset in the Great Lakes state? President Biden says Michigan is one of five states that will decide the race for the White House. TV5's Trey Harris was out in Saginaw County today to see how voter turnout is looking. In terms of August, plan on there being longer lines. And November, the longest lines that we're going to have of the year. Michiganders are heading to the polls today to decide who should run for president in November. Voters having to choose between Democrat or Republican in this closed primary. Many got a head start using absentee ballots, with more than a million using that option. Some observers believe that's a contributing factor to the lower than usual turnout today. Right now, we're kind of low. We should be a little higher but it'll pick up in the, set, in the evening hours. So we're expecting a little bit lower turnout than we've had for some other elections. Um, our absentee ballots weren't at the number that we normally have for other elections. Um, we're kind of thinking of it as a practice run for all of our election workers to get in the swing of things before we really gear up for August and November. One voter believes the results will be tight, but says whatever the outcome, a vote is one of the most important ways to be heard. Democrats having two choices and incumbent Joe Biden or Dean Phillips, while Republicans will have three options, Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, and Ryan Binkley. It's good to exercise our right to vote so that our voices can be heard, whether we believe it or not. And at a point in time, we couldn't vote. So now that we have the ability to vote and get our voices heard, we need to get out and make sure it's heard. Locally, voters will decide the fates of school millages and public safety, including one to pay for police and fire in Saginaw. 20 officers and 10 firefighters is what we're trying to add. And I am all for that. Yeah, I feel good. I feel like my voice will be heard. My vote will be counted. So, I mean, I feel good about who I voted for. Trey Harris, WNEM TV5. Finish. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, Tucker. Um, just going back to President uh, Macron's comments um, about um, not ruling out Western troops on the ground in Ukraine. Um, has President Macron discussed uh, that suggestion with President Biden at all? I, uh, I won't go beyond uh, the readout uh, of the conversation. I don't have anything more to add on that. Very briefly, um, you said um, as well that the President Biden has said before that um, he would not send uh, U.S. troops to Ukraine in a combat role. Um, the French Foreign Minister suggested that Western troops could be sent for demining or uh, arms production or cyber. Is there um, a possibility that is that something that would be considered by the U.S.? No, the only U.S. Uh, military personnel um, that uh, that that are in Ukraine are associated with the embassy as part of the defense attache office, and they're doing important work in terms of uh, helping us with the accountability of weapons and systems that are provided to Ukraine. Uh, the president's been clear there's not going to be U.S. troops on the ground in Ukraine. Thank you. So uh, in the past, you've described uh, Speaker Johnson's proposals as not serious regarding government funding, the border, yeah. uh, Ukraine. In the Oval Office today, was Speaker Johnson serious? Did he meet the threshold that the White House has set in the past? So a couple of things. I know some. Uh, I know that um, uh, the, uh, Senator Schumer said it was intense. Yes, the meeting was intense, but it was also very productive. And I think that's important uh, to take that into account. A couple of things uh, that I would say is that all four uh, congressional leaders agreed with the president and the vice president uh, that a shutdown is unacceptable. 
But as you all know, the clock is ticking. It is ticking. It has been ticking for some time now, and it continues to do so, right, as it relates, uh, obviously, to uh, to um, a potential shutdown, but also, uh, but also what we're seeing, right, with the National Security Supplemental, this is something that we uh, put forth back in October. And as it relates to that, all four uh, leaders also understood the gravity the gravity of the situation in Ukraine. And they heard, and here's the thing, they heard a sobering uh, account from the CIA director who was in the room uh, about uh, about how Ukraine has lost ground on the battlefield. You heard me say that at the top uh, in recent weeks because of congressional inaction. And so this is the reality. This is the reality that Ukraine is in. This is the reality that we're in when we talk about our national security. And this is the reality that Congress is in. They have not taken action. And so we are seeing what's happening currently in the battlefield in Ukraine. So as the president said, there are consequences. Uh, and the consequences are incredibly dire. Congress must take action. We have to support our national security. And that is what the president that was the, the message that went into uh, during that uh, during that meeting, uh, and that's how we saw the meeting play out. All four congressional leaders were in agreement on those on, on those uh, two pieces that I just laid out here. It is incredibly important to move forward. Uh, the clock is ticking here. The clock is ticking. Go ahead. Tonight, furious debate over so-called sanctuary cities. Police say the suspect in the murder of Lake and Riley was in the country illegally. Atlanta News First, Chelsea Bonfour is live at 5. And Chelsea, sanctuary cities, well, they're not legal here in Georgia, but some areas have found ways to navigate around that. Well, Tracy, the state legislature banned sanctuary cities back in 2009, but some cities like Clarkston have found loopholes, and now lawmakers, they're pushing back even harder. Under current policy, the athens Clark County Sheriff's Office says staff must notify the appropriate agency when a foreign national is taken into custody. The policy goes on to say they won't hold someone on a detainer unless it's accompanied by a warrant, and a person will be released within 48 hours unless picked up by the feds. Clarkston passed a similar resolution here years ago, but lawyer Holly Waltman says under state law, neither municipality is legally allowed to identify as a sanctuary city. athens Clark County would not state that they are a sanctuary city, but they do have laws in place that protect individuals that are undocumented within the state. And today, U.S. House Representative Mike Collins, who represents Georgia's 10th Congressional District, also sent a letter to the athens Clark County government asking for them to reverse their sanctuary policies. The mayor of Athens will be holding a press conference tomorrow to address some of these concerns. Reporting live in Clarkston, Chelsea Bime for Atlanta News First. And that was the news. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, the uh, Patriotic Shorts. Why does Russia have way more bombers than the United States? The reason could destroy the U.S. Let me explain. Well, to put things into perspective, the U.S. Air Force has around 158 bomber aircraft, while Russia has 214. One of the first reasons is the differences in their approaches. Russia has a unique strategy that sets them apart. Rather than focusing on building new advanced bombers, they keep a large fleet of older bombers still in service. But they don't use old aircraft. They upgrade weapons and technology to make them so much better. However, the U.S. does things very different. 
They focus on the development of cutting-edge advanced bombers to dominate every air force in the world. But the problem is that all these new aircrafts come with a crazy price tag. The cost of a Russian Tupolev 160 is around 270 million. A lot less when compared to the cost of a Northrop Grumman B-2 bomber, which is more than $2 billion. Russia's strategy means they can buy more yachts for their leaders. Why the U.S. Air Force is making aerial refueling harder is not what you think. Aerial refueling can be compared to sticking a thread into a needle in front of a fan. And if that's not tricky enough, try doing it blindfolded. Traditionally, the boom operators sit or lie down at the rear of the tanker while looking through a window. The operator manipulates the boom side to side and up and down using a joystick that controls the V-shaped airfoil. But on the Air Force's newest KC-46 tankers, the window was replaced with a remote station that uses a remote vision system, or RVS. The problem is that during certain atmospheric conditions, the cameras would wash out, resulting in the operator not being able to see the tip of the boom. This has even caused damage to the body coating on the receiver aircraft. While the washout problem is expected to be fixed with RVS 2.0, this begs the question, why overcomplicate things by removing the window? And the answer appears to be that the RVS is a transition step to a fully automated refueling system, ultimately eliminating the need for a boom operator. An SR-71 Blackbird traveled all the way to the North Pole before Christmas. But why? The SR-71 is the fastest recorded military aircraft ever created. When the first report noted that it had a top speed of Mach 3.2, it exceeded everyone's expectations. However, nobody would have expected its first mission. The U.S. thought that the Russians were surveying their submarines with a base on the ice near the North Pole. The crew, including Bob Spencer and Colonel Richard Sheffield, was pre-planned for their nighttime mission to the North Pole. From Beale's Air Force Base, they headed north, stopping over Alaska to refuel before continuing on and reaching their destination. If something went wrong, they would never be discovered. At 75,000 feet, they traveled towards the ice station. A tanker was following them in the event of a failure in the engine. When they activated the radar, they observed the area, taking pictures of everything below. Their supersonic approach went unrecognized. Why some U.S. Navy ships cannot be refueled at sea is not what you think. There are four ways to resupply U.S. Navy vessels. One is when docked at port by passing boxes around or with the help of cranes. Two is when the ships are connected with cables and supplies or fuel is transferred between them. Three is with the help of helicopters, which doesn't require the ships to be physically connected. And four is by airdropping supplies from a cargo plane, not for surface vessels, but for submarines. Using cargo planes or helicopters are the only ways to resupply submarines while at sea. But then how does the U.S. Navy refuel its submarines at sea? Well, it doesn't. In fact, the Navy doesn't refuel its aircraft carriers either because they're nuclear-powered, giving them virtually unlimited range. They're only refueled once, about 20 to 25 years after commissioning, during a process called refueling and overhaul, which can take anywhere from two to three years. The last conventional carriers the U.S. Navy operated were the John F. Kennedy, retired 2007, Kitty Hawk, decommissioned 2009, Constellation, decommissioned 2003, and America, expended as target 2005. All had worked hard over their careers and were retired because they were beyond further economic use, making them unattractive for the Royal Navy who needed ships with a 50-year service life. Even though we say that the U.S. Navy's conventional carriers haven't retired yet, that's impossible because of national security and maybe technological superiority. Aircraft carriers are considered strategic assets and play a vital role in a nation's defense capabilities. 
The U.S. Navy may prioritize retaining its conventional carrier fleet to maintain its own national security interests and maintain a robust force projection capability. So the short answer is, the U.S. doesn't have any conventional aircraft carriers to sell. In January 2021, an Iranian SH-3C King helicopter captured this video. In this footage you can see a submarine cruising at periscope depth in the Persian Gulf. At first circumstances were unclear, and it was reported that an unidentified foreign submarine entered the Iranian naval training area near the Strait of Hormuz, but it became clear very soon that it was a U.S. Navy's guided cruise missile submarine of the Ohio class. The USS Georgia SSGN-729 is one of the four Ohio submarines that were converted from ballistic missile subs to guided missile subs, instead of retirement. Each of these submarines now carry 154 Tomahawk cruise missiles. The sub transited into the Persian Gulf on December 21, 2020. The dry dock shelter installed on USS Georgia is also visible in the submarine's underwater profile, as you can see here. The helicopter and submarine observed one another, and then moved on, as if nothing happened. Maybe Georgia was there to keep an eye on Iranian drills, but it reportedly left the area afterward, with some Iranian outlets implying that it was forced to leave after being detected. Major General John Dahlquist gave the order to advance his 36th Infantry Division through the densely forested Vosges Mountains to liberate the French commune at Bifontaine. But thick fog made for slow going, and soon they realized they had walked into a German ambush. With their escape cut off, Dahlquist's men, known as the Texas Battalion, were pinned down and outnumbered. Food and munitions were rapidly dwindling, and the Allies made two failed rescue attempts. Just hours from annihilation, the 442nd Regiment was called in, a segregated unit of Japanese Americans known for their bravery and heroism. They trudged through German landmines, terrible weather, and heavy artillery to bust through and save the Texas Battalion taking massive casualties along the way. In 2011, the unit was finally awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. We were proud to serve our country, said one of the surviving members, through tears. This airplane can shoot 50 bullets in less than a second. But why it's designed to not eject the casings from those rounds is not what you... Some may say that the reason for not ejecting the casings is to help reduce the risk of casings interfering with the A-10 Warthog's critical components, such as the engines or other aircraft systems. And even though that may be true, there is a much cooler reason. The weight of the casings act as ballast for the center of gravity of the aircraft. If the empty shells were to be ejected, it would negatively impact the A-10's center of gravity. But if they're not ejected, where do they go? The casings from the fired rounds are actually cycled back into the gun's rotating drum and collected within the gun's housing. It's only when the A-10 is reloaded on the ground that the spent casings are offloaded, which is done simultaneously while the live rounds are being loaded in. He was an intelligence officer with the 28th Regiment, 5th Marine Division, and he was among the first wave to hit the beaches at Iwo Jima. As he trudged across the mushy sand, he wasn't sure how anyone would survive the unrelenting Japanese machine gun fire. His name was Warren Mush, and he was part of Lieutenant Harold Schreer's patrol that captured the top of Mount Suribachi. He witnessed the first smaller flag get raised on the mountaintop, and a bit later overheard Lieutenant Colonel Chandler Johnson order Ted Tuttle to retrieve a larger flag from a landing craft and replace it. Mush then saw Marine combat photographer Robert McCormick drop and break his camera while heading up Suribachi, at just the same time AP photographer Joe Rosenthal was headed down. Hey, Joe! You better head back up. There's some good photos from the top, Mush overheard McCormick say to Rosenthal as they passed each other. Minutes later, Joe Rosenthal would capture one of the most iconic pictures in American history, 
and he would win the Pulitzer Prize for it. Have you ever wondered why the aviators in the movie Top Gun Maverick wear sunglasses? Well, actually, the sunglasses worn by the pilots in the movie are not only a fashion choice, but also a functional one that serves a practical purpose. The original Ray-Ban aviator sunglasses, which are worn by Tom Cruise's character Maverick, were designed in the 1930s specifically to help protect pilots' eyes from the intense glare of the sun above the clouds. The green glass lenses helped cut out blue light, which was a common problem for aviators. The sunglasses also became a symbol of coolness and toughness thanks to their association with celebrities and military heroes who wore them. In the movie, Maverick wears the same style of sunglasses as he did in the original Top Gun movie, while other characters wear different variants of the Ray-Ban aviator, such as the caravan or the outdoorsman, which have different shapes and features. What happens if a fighter jet gets shot? And that was the Patriotic Shorts, back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Now a little bit of motivation. Here, we'll do a little bit of arithmetic. So, a while back, Disney executive mentioned on video, she said, well, I have two children, five and seven. One is trans and the other is pansexual. And I just thought mathematically right away, it's like the chance you have a trans kid is one in 3,000. That's not a very high chance. And let's say the chance that you have a pansexual kid is the same whatever pansexual means but whatever that is is rarer than trans because no one ever even heard about it until five years ago so the joint probability that you have a trans kid and a pansexual kid is one in nine million the odds that you're a pathological narcissist sacrificing your own children to the glorification of your compassion is eight million nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine one. So, like, do you have a trans kid and a pansexual kid, or are you a devouring mother? Well, you can look at the odds and decide for yourself. Traffic, Air Triple Three, Lima Delta, Air Van 333, Lima Delta, for Pierce Tower. I've got a furious situation here. My pilot has gone into the I have no idea how to fly the airplane, but I'm standing in 91 Number 333, Lima Delta, Roger, what's your position? I have no idea. I can see the coast of Florida in front of me, and I have no idea. American 1845, you can make the left turn there, hold short of one zero left. It's going to be a couple minutes. Uh, you just witnessed a couple passengers land that plane. Not a problem. Uh, go ahead and uh, continue. We'll hold short one zero left, American 1845. Man, they did a great job. Did you say the passengers landed the airplane? That's correct. Oh, my God. Yeah, no. no, great job. No flying experience. <laughs> we got a controller that worked them down. That's a flight instructor. Yes. I've never, in all my years as a clinical psychologist, and this is something that really does terrify me, I, has, I have never seen anyone ever get away with anything at all, even one. You know, there's that old idea that God has a book, you know, and keeps track of everything in heaven. It's like, okay, okay, you know, maybe it's not a book. Fine. But that is a really useful thing to think about because, well, maybe you disagree. Maybe you think people get away with things all the time. I tell you, I've never seen it. What I see instead is the thing happens, right? They, someone twists the fabric of reality and they do it successfully because it doesn't snap back at them that moment. And then like two years later, something unraveled and they get walloped and they think, oh my God, that's so unfair. And then we track it. It's like, well, what happened before that? This. Well, then what? This. And then what? This. And then what? Oh, oh, this. Well, that's where it went wrong. 
It's yeah, because you can't twist the fabric of reality without having it snap back. It doesn't work that way. And why would it? Because what are you going to do? Twist the fabric of reality? I don't think so. Here's the story. Here's how to, here's how to survive in Indonesia. Okay. So you live on a mountain, but it's a volcano. All right. So you get to climb up the volcano at night. It has to be at night because it's too hot otherwise. And so you have to climb up this volcano and it's a mountain. Then you have to go inside the volcano down to near where the volcano is active because it's active. So it's belching out sulfuric clouds at you all the time. And if you encounter a bad one, then you just die. So when you have a mask around your face that's just a wet rag and you go down to the volcano and you pick up a 40 pound clump of sulfur. And then you carry it up out of the volcano at night, because otherwise it's too hot. And then you carry it down the mountain and you get a couple of dollars so that you can do it again. Yeah, that's not your life. But someone has that life. And you don't have that life because look around you, man. This is a remarkable place that we've built. Life is a jest. Take the delight of it. Laughter is best. Sing through the night of it. Swiftly the tear and the hurt and the ache of it. Find us down here. Life must be what we make of it. Life is a song. Let us dance to the thrill of it. Grief's hours are long, and cold is the chill of it. Joy is man's need. Let us smile for the sake of it. This be our creed. Life must be what we make of it. Life is a soul, the virtue and vice of it. Strife for a goal, and man's strength is the price of it. Your life and mine, the bare bread and the cake of it, end in this line. Life must be what we make of it. When things go wrong, as they sometimes will, when the road you're trudging seems all uphill, when the funds are low and the debts are high, and you want to smile, but you have to sigh. When care is pressing you down a bit, rest if you must, but don't you quit. Life is queer with its twists and turns as every one of us sometimes learns. And many a failure turns about when he might have won and he stuck it out. Don't give up. 
Though the pace seems slow, you may succeed with another blow. Often the goal is nearer than it seems to a faint and faltering man. Often the struggler has given up when he might have captured the victor's cup. And he learned too late when the night slipped down how close he was to the golden crown. Success is failure turned inside out. The silver tint of the clouds of doubt. And you never can tell how close you are. It may be near when it seems afar. So stick to the fight when you're hardest hit. It's when things seem worst that you mustn't quit. Hatred that's deep and undying. 
for once it is welcomed, twill break any man. Whatever the goal you are seeking, keep trying, and answer this demon by saying, I can. Thank you, thank you. Now the uh, Daily Law for February the 27th. February 27th. Establish your own style. The distance you establish from your predecessor often demands some symbolism, a way of advertising itself publicly. Louis XIV, for example, created such symbolism when he rejected the traditional palace of the French kings and built his own palace of Versailles. King Philip II of Spain did the same when he created his center of power, the Palace of El Escorial, in what was then the middle of nowhere. But Louis carried the game further. He would not be a king like his father or earlier ancestors. He would not wear a crown or carry a scepter or sit on a throne. He would establish a new kind of imposing authority with symbols and rituals of its own. Louis made his ancestors' rituals into laughable relics of the past. Follow his example. Never let yourself be seen as following your predecessor's path. If you do, you will never surpass him. You must physically demonstrate your difference by establishing a style and symbolism that sets you apart. Daily Law Follow the Master's example, not his path. Demonstrate your difference. Establish your own style. The 48 Laws of Power, Law 41. Avoid stepping into a great man's shoes. And that was the Daily Law for February the 27th from the book The Daily Laws by Robert Greene. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. Now, Bishop Robert Barron. What do you hunger and thirst for? I'm hungry and thirsty for success, for power, for bodily pleasure. You'll be happy if you hunger and thirst for one thing, righteousness. That means doing the will of God. Again, think about this now. When you get out of bed in the morning, ask yourself that question. What do you want? If you're super honest, you'll uncover some of these attachments. Well, you know, deep down, what I want is to be a big worldly success. What I want deep down through all these things is for everybody to like me. Okay, that's the way we sinners think. You want to be holy, happy, hunger, and thirst for righteousness. What if you went through your day now? Think about this. With every decision, what do I want? Do I want to do the right thing? Do I want to follow God's will? Do I want to follow the path of love or something else? Because there's only one thing that your life should be about. If you're divided in heart, you're not going to walk this path. You want to be happy? And that was Bishop Robert Barron back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. And now, the Ayn Rand thought of the day. Quote, 
What you see around you today among modern intellectuals is the grotesque spectacle of such attributes as militant uncertainty, crusading cynicism, dogmatic agnosticism, boastful self-abasement, and self-righteous depravity. The two absolutes of today's non-absolutists are that ignorance consists of claiming knowledge and that immorality consists of pronouncing moral judgments. Unquote. And that was the Ayn Rand thought of the day. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. Now we uh, pick up where we left off with the 33 strategies of war. A more decentralized enemy will have several separate centers of gravity. The key here is to disorganize them by cutting off communications between them. That was what General Douglas MacArthur did in his remarkable campaign in the Pacific during World War II. He skipped some islands, but took key ones, keeping the Japanese extended over a vast area and making it impossible for them to communicate with each other. It is almost always strategically wise to disrupt your enemy's lines of communication. If the parts cannot communicate with the whole, chaos ensues. Your enemy's center of gravity can be something abstract, like a quality, concept, or aptitude on which he depends, his reputation, his capacity to deceive, his unpredictability. But such strengths become critical vulnerabilities if you can make them unattractive or unusable. In fighting the Scythians in what is now modern-day Iran, a tribe that no one could figure out how to defeat, Alexander the Great saw the center of gravity as their complete mobility on horseback and their fluid, almost chaotic style of fighting. He simply plotted to neutralize the source of this power by luring them on to enclosed ground in which they could not use their cavalry and pell-mell tactics. He defeated them with ease. To find an enemy's center of gravity, you have to erase your own tendency to think in conventional terms or to assume that the other side's center is the same as your own. When Salvador Dali came to the United States in 1940, intent on conquering the country as an artist and making his fortune, he made a clever calculation. In the European art world, an artist had to win over the critics and make a name as serious. In America, though, that kind of fame would doom an artist to a ghetto, a limited circle. The real center of gravity was the American media. By wooing the newspapers he would gain access to the American public, and the American public would make him a star. Again, in the civil war between communists and nationalists for control of China in the late 1920s and early 30s, most of the communists focused on taking cities, as the Bolsheviks had done in Russia. But Mao Zedong, an outsider within the dogmatic Chinese Communist Party, was able to look at China in a clear light and see China's center of gravity as its vast peasant population. Win them to his side, he believed, and the revolution could not fail. That single insight proved the key to the communists' success. Such is the power of identifying the center of gravity. We often hide our sources of power from view. What most people consider a center of gravity is often a front. But sometimes an enemy will reveal his center of gravity 
by what he protects the most fervently. In bringing the Civil War into Georgia, General William Tecumseh Sherman discovered that the South was particularly anxious to protect Atlanta and the areas around it. That was the South's industrial center of gravity. Like Sherman, attack what the enemy most treasures or threaten it to make the enemy divert forces to defend itself. In any group, power and influence will naturally devolve to a handful of people behind the scenes. That kind of power works best when it is not exposed to the light of day. Once you discover this coterie holding the strings, win it over. As president during the Depression, Franklin Roosevelt faced problems from so many sides that it was difficult for him to know where his energy should go. In the end, he decided that the key to enacting his reforms was winning over Congress. Then, within Congress, there were particular leaders who held the real power. He concentrated on wooing and seducing these leaders with his great charm. It was one of the secrets to his success. What ultimately guides a group is the command and control center, the operational brain that takes in information then makes the crucial decisions. Disrupting the functioning of that brain will cause dislocation throughout the enemy army. Before almost every battle, Alexander the Great would examine the enemy's organization, pinpointing as best he could the location of the command structure, then either attacking it or isolating it, making it impossible for the brain to communicate with the body. Even in a sport as physical as boxing, Muhammad Ali, in crafting a strategy to defeat his arch-nemesis, Joe Frazier, took aim at Frazier's mind, the ultimate center of gravity for any individual. Before every fight, Ali would get under Frazier's skin, riling him up by calling him an Uncle Tom, a tool of the white man's media. He would keep going during the fight itself, taunting Frazier mercilessly in the ring. Frazier became obsessed with Ali, could not think about him without bursting with anger. Controlling Frazier's mind was the key to controlling his body. In any interaction with people, you must train yourself to focus on their strength, the source of their power, whatever it is that gives them their most crucial support. That knowledge will afford you many strategic options, many angles from which to attack, subtly or not so subtly undermining their strength rather than hitting it head on. You can create no greater sense of panic in your enemies than that of being unable to use their strengths. Reversal Every living creature has a center of gravity. Even the most decentralized group has to communicate and depends on a network that is vulnerable to attack. There is no reversal to this principle. Here are further reflections on the center of gravity strategy. From The Wiles of War, 36 Military Strategies from Ancient China. Man depends on his throat for fluent breathing and the maintenance of life. When his throat is strangled, his five sense organs will lose their sensibility and no longer function normally. He will not be able to stretch his limbs, which become numb and paralyzed. The man can therefore rarely survive. Thus, when the banners of the enemy come into sight and the beating of its battle drums can be heard, we must first ascertain the positions of its back and throat. Then we can attack it from the back 
and strangle its throat. This is an excellent strategy to crush the enemy. From the Sword and the Mind The third shogun, Iemitsu, was fond of sword matches. Once, when he arranged to see some of his outstanding swordsmen display their skills, he spotted, among the gathering, a master equestrian by the name of Suwa Bunkuro and impulsively asked him to take part. Bunkuro responded by saying that he would be pleased to if he could fight on horseback, adding that he could defeat anyone on horseback. Iemitsu was delighted to urge the swordsman to fight Bunkuro in the style he preferred. As it turned out, Bunkuro was right in his boasting. Brandishing a sword on a prancing horse wasn't something many swordsmen were used to, and Bunkuro easily defeated everyone who dared face him on horseback. Somewhat exasperated, Iemitsu told Muninori to give it a try. Though a bystander on this occasion, Muninori at once complied and mounted a horse. As his horse trotted up to Bunkuro's, Muninori suddenly stopped his horse and slapped the nose of Bunkuro's horse with his wooden sword. Bunkuro's horse reared, and while the famed equestrian was trying to restore his balance, Muninori struck him off his horse. From the Greek Myths by Robert Graves Heracles did not return to Mycenae by a direct route. He first traversed Libya, whose king Antaeus, son of Poseidon and Mother Earth, was in the habit of forcing strangers to wrestle with him until they were exhausted, whereupon he killed them. For not only was he a strong and skillful athlete, but whenever he touched the earth his strength revived. He saved the skulls of his victims to roof a temple of Poseidon. It is not known whether Heracles, who was determined to end this barbarous practice, challenged Antaeus or was challenged by him. Antaeus, however, proved no easy victim, being a giant who lived in a cave beneath a towering cliff where he feasted on the flesh of lions and slept on the bare ground in order to conserve and increase his already colossal strength. Mother Earth, not yet sterile after her birth of the giant, had conceived Antaeus in a Libyan cave and found more reason to boast of him than ever of her monstrous elder children, Typhon, Titius, and Briarius. It would have gone ill with the Olympians if he had fought against them on the plains of Phlegra. In preparation for the wrestling match, both combatants cast off their lion pelts, but while Heracles rubbed himself with oil in the Olympian fashion... Antaeus poured hot sand over his limbs, lest contact with the earth through the soles of his feet alone should prove insufficient. Heracles planned to preserve his strength and wear Antaeus down, but after tossing him full length on the ground, he was amazed to see the giant's muscles swell, and a healthy flush suffuse his limbs as Mother Earth revived him. The combatants grappled again, and presently Antaeus flung himself down of his own accord, not waiting to be thrown, upon which Heracles, realizing what he was at, lifted him high into the air, then cracked his ribs, and despite the hollow groans of Mother Earth, held him aloft until he died. And that was the 33 Strategies of War by Robert Greene, back in a minute.
Thank you, thank you. So uh, if you're a Democrat, you should be voting Republican and become a Republican because the pressure's off. Uh, on the Democrat side of the, the ticket, the Democrats are under constant pressure to produce paradise and to produce it yesterday. The Democrat Party is about 50 years behind schedule. They should have created paradise about 50 years ago, but they failed to do so. So the pressure is on, the pressure is on, the pressure is on. Got to get the movement, got to get to... Uh, Perfect, 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 perfect. And from the time you get up in the morning until the time you go to bed at night, you're under the gun. Your fellow Democrats are looking at you wondering why it is that you're going to Starbucks instead of doing something to create socialist paradise. But in the Republican Party, no such thing. Because we're realistic. We know there's never been a paradise. There isn't now. And therefore, there's not going to be any type of paradise other than the second coming of Jesus Christ. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. Our educational system is failing because subversives have successfully claimed that history is written by the winners. This leaves the psychological impression that history is a matter of politics and not a matter of scholarship. And since all academic subjects have a history, they are now all under socio-political pressure. This makes our educational system unreliable, and our children suffer as a result. Howard Zinn's People, People's History of the United States and Queer Strippers in Elementary Schools are two examples of the subversive's use of our educational system as a tool to further their aims to reestablish excellence in our educational system, we must reemphasize the scholarship involved in all subjects, but particularly in history. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. Now uh, a little bit of Barney and Company. Its review of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's secret hospitalization. Lauren, uh, what, what are they saying in it? It's no one's fault. No one has gotten in trouble. Here you go. As the Secretary has said, the buck stops with him, and he's taken responsibility for not notifying the, the President uh, and the White House sooner. Uh, and the, the review is also clear uh, that there can be more guidance for how determinations are made, executed, and communicated. As the uh, Office of the Director of Administration and Management conducted this review, they found nothing uh, during the review that demonstrated any indication of ill attempt, intent or attempt to obfuscate by the individuals involved. So uh, the important thing on this, this is determinism in action. This is don't blame him, don't blame me, blame the guy behind the tree. And uh, the left likes determinism because it's a way that they can say, uh, I'm not at fault. The problem is the system. Okay, this is what they teach their children. They say, oh, you're perfect. So if the children have any conflicts, well, it must be the system that they're in. And that that's what needs to be reformed. And that's what we're hearing here. Nothing wrong with the secretary, even though that's not true. It, he can't have it both ways, say, well, the buck stops with him, but he didn't do anything wrong. He, he obviously did something wrong. Uh, and so he has decided that the problem is the system. And so now I suppose we're going to have some kind of reforms to um, make sure that this uh, thing, this situation doesn't happen again. 
But make no mistake about it, it's his fault and he should be punished. He should either uh, do the manly thing and resign or uh, the president should fire him. One of the two. Back in a minute. Thank you, thank you. So with uh, President Biden, one of the things, the other things that occurred to me about um, the situation with uh, President Biden and why I keep asking myself, why do the Democrats allow this to continue? Why do they allow him to trip and fall and stammer and stutter? Because he did it again the other day. He was giving some speech. I think it was yesterday. Every time he gets up to make a speech, he can't, even when he has notes, he can't complete the speech. Uh, It's that bad. So why do they allow this to happen? Why, do they, why haven't they gotten rid of him a long time ago? And then it occurred to me that I remember back in 2000 with the election of, um, uh, let's see, uh, of it was w, George W. Bush, and he beat uh, good old Al Gore, and there was a big deal about, it was really, really close election, and Al Gore ends up losing. So one uh, Democrat suggested, hey, uh, we should maybe we should have a co-presidency, and, and they further suggested that the job was too big for one person. So then I, that occurred. The light goes on. I say that realize that the Democrats don't look at the presidency the same way uh, Republicans do. The Republicans look at the presidency as being exactly like it's in the Constitution, an individual that is the head of the federal government and runs the federal government. The Democrats look at it democratically, as far as they're concerned, the president, in this case Joe Biden, is simply a figurehead. He's simply the face of the administration and that all decisions are made in um, by vote, that they get all the, all the people in the administration, the, the uh, off various office holders and whatnot, form a like a committee, except it is a uh, stakeholders. That's the way they were always referred to it. They're stakeholders. They get all the stakeholders together, and the decisions are made jointly. This is why it takes the Biden administration so long to get anything done, as compared to, say, Donald Trump. Donald Trump, if there's a balloon flying around over North Dakota, it's gone, because he just gives the order, go uh, get that balloon, and it's gone. But the Biden administration has to get all the stakeholders together and they have to have a meeting and then they have to make what they think is the perfect decision. So it takes forever for them to make a decision if they can be bothered to make a decision at all. So this is, again, the way they look at it, that Joe Biden is just the face of the administration. If he stumbles every once in a while, he falls down, big deal. If he slurs his words or whatever, big deal. He's just the face of the administration. Now, they'd prefer it, of course, if he looked good, if he was a a prettier face, so to speak. But uh, at, the, at the end of the day, since the decisions, all the decisions are made jointly, it's not that big a deal to them. So that's the difference between Republicans and the way they look at the executive. It was not even the way they look at it. The Republicans have it right because the Republicans do it according to the Constitution. There's nothing in the Constitution that uh, calls for a consensus, a presidential consensus in order to make decisions. It's the president that makes the call. The president can see, talk to various advisors and whatnot, but the president is ultimately the one that makes the call. So... Back in a minute. 
Thank you, thank you. And now, former President Donald Trump's address to Congress, February 28, 2017. As I outlined the next steps we must take as a country, we must honestly acknowledge the circumstances we inherited. 94 million Americans are out of the labor force. Over 43 million people are now living in poverty. And over 43 million Americans are on food stamps. More than one in five people in their prime working years are not working. We have the worst financial recovery in 65 years. In the last eight years, the past administration has put on more new debt than nearly all of the other presidents combined. We've lost more than one-fourth of our manufacturing jobs since NAFTA was approved. And we've lost 60,000 factories since China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001. Our trade deficit in goods with the world last year was nearly $800 billion. And overseas, we have inherited a series of tragic foreign policy disasters. Solving these and so many other pressing problems will require us to work past the differences of party. It will require us to tap into the American spirit that has overcome every challenge throughout our long and storied history. But to accomplish our goals at home and abroad, we must restart the engine of the American economy making it easier for companies to do business in the United States and much, much harder for companies to leave our country. Right now, American companies are taxed at one of the highest rates anywhere in the world. My economic team is developing historic tax reform that will reduce the tax rate on our companies so they can compete and thrive anywhere and with anyone. It will be a big, big cut. At the same time, we will provide massive tax relief for the middle class. We must create a level playing field for American companies and our workers have to be. Currently, when we ship products out of America, many other countries make us pay very high tariffs and taxes. But when foreign companies ship their products into America, we charge them nothing or almost nothing. I just met with officials and workers from a great American company, Harley-Davidson. In fact, they proudly displayed five of their magnificent motorcycles made in the USA on the front lawn of the White House. And they wanted me to ride one, and I said, no, thank you. <laughs> At our meeting, I asked them, how are you doing? How is business? They said that it's good. I asked them further, how are you doing with other countries, mainly international sales? They told me without even complaining, because they have been so mistreated for so long that they've become used to it. 
that it's very hard to do business with other countries because they tax our goods at such a high rate. They said that in the case of another country, they tax their motorcycles at 100%. They weren't even asking for a change, but I am. I believe. I believe strongly in free trade, but it also has to be fair trade. It's been a long time since we had fair trade. The first Republican president, Abraham Lincoln, warned that the abandonment of the protective policy by the American government will produce want and ruin among our people. Lincoln was right, and it's time we heeded his advice and his words. I am not going to let America and its great companies and workers be taken advantage of us any longer. They have taken advantage of our country no longer. I'm going to bring back millions of jobs. Protecting our workers also means reforming our system of legal immigration. The current outdated system depresses wages for our poorest workers and puts great pressure on taxpayers. Nations around the world, like Canada, Australia, and many others, have a merit-based immigration system. It's a basic principle that those seeking to enter a country ought to be able to support themselves financially. Yet in America, we do not enforce this rule, straining the very public resources that our poorer citizens rely upon. According to the National Academy of Sciences, our current immigration system costs American taxpayers many billions of dollars a year. Switching away from this current system of lower-skilled immigration and instead adopting a merit-based system, we will have so many more benefits. It will save countless dollars raise workers' wages, and help struggling families, including immigrant families, enter the middle class. And they will do it quickly. And they will be very, very happy indeed. I believe that real and positive immigration reform is possible as long as we focus on the following goals to improve jobs and wages for Americans, to strengthen our nation's security, and to restore respect for our laws. If we are guided by the well-being of American citizens, then I believe Republicans and Democrats can work together to achieve an outcome that has eluded our country for decades.
Another Republican president, Dwight D. Eisenhower, initiated the last truly great national infrastructure program, the building of the interstate highway system. The time has come for a new program of national rebuilding. America has spent approximately $6 trillion in the Middle East. All the while, our infrastructure at home is crumbling. With the $6 trillion, we could have rebuilt our country twice, and maybe even three times if we had people who had the ability to negotiate. To launch our national rebuilding, I will be asking Congress to approve legislation that produces a $1 trillion investment in infrastructure of the United States, financed through both public and private capital, creating millions of new jobs. This effort will be guided by two core principles, buy American and hire American. Tonight, I am also calling on this Congress to repeal and replace Obamacare. reforms that expand choice, increase access, lower costs, and at the same time provide better health care. Mandating every American to buy government-approved health insurance was never the right solution for our country. The way to make health insurance available to everyone is to lower the cost of health insurance, and that is what we are going to do. Obamacare premiums nationwide have increased by double and triple digits. As an example, Arizona went up 116% last year alone. Governor Matt Bevin of Kentucky just said Obamacare is failing in his state, the state of Kentucky, and it's unsustainable and collapsing. One-third of the counties have only one insurer, and they're losing them fast. They are losing them so fast. They're leaving And many Americans have no choice at all. There's no choice left. Remember, when you were told that you could keep your doctor and keep your plan, we now know that all of those promises have been totally broken. 
Obamacare is collapsing, and we must act decisively to protect all Americans. Action is not a choice, it is a necessity. So I am calling on all Democrats and Republicans in Congress to work with us to save Americans from this imploding Obamacare disaster. Here are the principles that should guide Congress as we move to create a better health care system for all Americans. First, We should ensure that Americans with pre-existing conditions have access to coverage and that we have a stable transition for Americans currently enrolled in the health care exchanges. Secondly, we should help Americans purchase their own coverage through the use of tax credits and expanded health savings accounts. But it must be the plan they want, not the plan forced on them by our government. Thirdly, we should give our state governors the resources and flexibility they need with Medicaid to make sure no one is left out. Fourth, we should implement legal reforms that protect patients and doctors from unnecessary costs that drive up the price of insurance and work to bring down the artificially high price of drugs and bring them down immediately. And finally, the time has come to give Americans the freedom to purchase health insurance across state lines. which will create a truly competitive national marketplace that will bring costs way down and provide far better care. So important. Everything that is broken in our country can be fixed. Every problem can be solved. And every hurting family can find healing and hope. Our citizens deserve this and so much more So why not join forces and finally get the job done and get it done right? On this And so many other things, Democrats and Republicans should get together and unite for the good of our country. 
and for the good of the American people. My administration wants to work with members of both parties to make childcare accessible and affordable, to help ensure new parents that they have paid family leave. invest in women's health and to promote clean air and clean water and to rebuild our military and our infrastructure. True love for our people requires us to find common ground to advance the common good, and to cooperate on behalf of every American child who deserves a much brighter future. An incredible young woman is with us this evening who should serve as an inspiration to us all. Today is Rare Disease Day, and joining us in the gallery is a rare disease survivor, Megan Crowley. Megan... Megan was diagnosed with Pompeii disease, a rare and serious illness, when she was 15 months old. She was not expected to live past five. On receiving this news, Megan's dad, John, fought with everything he had to save the life of his precious child. He founded a company to look for a cure and helped develop the drug that saved Megan's life. Today, she is 20 years old and a sophomore at Notre Dame. <laughs> Megan's story is about the unbounded power of a father's love for a daughter. But our slow and burdensome approval process at the Food and Drug Administration keeps too many advances, like the one that saved Megan's life, from reaching those in need. If we slash the restraints, not just at the FDA, but across our government, then we will be blessed with far more miracles just like Megan. And that was uh, the latest cut from President Trump, The Collected Speeches. Back in a minute. (laughs) 
Thank you, thank you. This is Ron, your host, the only true conservative in the United States today, bidding adios to all the butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers out there and reminding you that you are not neutral and that the government has no rights. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 